This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Well, hi there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast, where we're bringing you stories of successful Christians who've been able to find a way of bringing faith into the success of their life. This morning, I'm delighted to be talking with Kate Brax. Kate has become a bit of a household name across Australia. She was featured or became a national celebrity in MasterChef Season 3, in which Kate um, featured in 2011, winning that particular competition. Kate uh, was previously a school teacher, uh, moved into MasterChef, enjoyed the life of, of a national celebrity for a period of time, and uh, did lots of different things, finds a way back into teaching. Mother of three, living in regional New South Wales. Kate, thank you for your time this morning. Can I start by asking you, did you... Did you were you a master at the the uh, chocolate crackles in um, in primary school? That was the the beginning steps into a master chef career. How did that begin for you? Yeah, if it had um, if it had anything sweet in it, I was a master at it. So I was actually an incredibly fussy eater, unless it came to came to sweets and baked goods, and then I would eat just about anything. So yeah, I think my journey into food was definitely by a love of those sorts of things and a willingness of my mum to give me free reign in the kitchen to play. So it started so, pretty early um, for you. Yeah. I've into the kitchen yeah. and, and exploring Yeah, it. I remember a really long summer holiday when I was bored and mum said, you know, why don't you cook something? And I spent hours one day cooking this layered cake and um, at the end of the day thought, yeah, that was really great. I'd love to do that again. And I think that was probably my earliest memory of thinking I really love cooking. And, and what is it about the cooking that, is it the, the produce, the, the thing that's there on the table for everyone to enjoy? Is it the process? Is it the community that you create by people enjoying food? What is it that attracts you to that? Yeah. I think it's multifaceted for me. I think absolutely the produce that I have in front of me and preferably do very little with it to make it taste amazing. The taste, the sensation that you get from tasting new and different flavours is something that's very motivating for me. Um, but absolutely the gathering of people, uh, it almost always centres around food of some kind and I think it's a wonderful expression of love when you can put something down that you've made mm. um, and that you've spent time preparing, putting that down in front of people builds community and at the end of the day people are always going to be more important than the food mm. and so for me that's a big draw card of enjoying the cooking is is doing it for people that I care about. We'll come back to that. I want to ask you, about uh, how food fits into a life of faith, but we'll put that on mm. for a moment. There's a common expression you, you hear it thrown around most most seasons of Master Chef, if not every episode of Master Chef and other cooking shows, about cooking with love. Do yeah. You, do you think there is some truth to that? That when it is invested with passion, it changes the way the yeah. food tastes. I do. And I think when they first started saying that in our season, um, I kept saying, yeah, but what is that? 
What is that? Like if I could just put love in, that would be all right. And I think really at the end of the day, it was a learning process for me of what that meant. Mm. And look, when I was first cooking in the MasterChef kitchen and they were saying these things, I didn't have that sort of sense of cooking for people I love because I didn't know these judges and I felt there was a threatening sort of element to it, I suppose. In yeah. And so... I, I think that as the process drew on, I understood more and more what that meant, probably culminating when they actually brought our families in yes. to cook for them. And I think that was where I went, oh, my goodness, this totally changes it, is when I cook for the people that I love. Yeah. There is so much more joy that happens around the actual process of cooking. Yeah. Whether that translates to the final product or not is actually becomes a little bit irrelevant because it's the sharing of the food. Yes. At the end, that um, that I think adds that cooking with love yeah. taste that people um, in, start to experience. And I think that as my journey with MasterChef went, I became attached in relationship to these people, to the judges, to the other contestants. And so I think that grew through the course of the competition uh, that I actually wanted to cook for them as well, yeah. not just yeah. not just to get through to the next round or not just so that I didn't, you know, wasn't embarrassed on national television, but actually you, you could start to set aside the cameras and the people and you just started to hone in more on just the cooking. It's really interesting that you mentioned that I hadn't, I hadn't uh, necessarily made that connection in that phrase that the cooking with love wasn't just the love you have for cooking, the love you have for that process, there, for that activity and, and your self-expression of love in the, creation of the food but mm. the actual relationship intended uh, relationship yeah. going to be shared around that brings another dimension to it that's really, well, really to me that's what it actually means it's less about my personal yeah. love of cooking although that does come through I suppose but it's more about who I'm cooking for yeah um, and it's yeah. interesting you know I've chatted to a lot of different people over many years and um, and something that stuck in my mind is that some people who live alone have said to me that since they've be, been on their own, they've lost their love of cooking. And I think that sort of marries in with that idea yes. of when you're just cooking for yourself, you, yes. you tend not to do put as much love into it, perhaps yes. wrongly. Perhaps we should be putting just as much love into it for ourselves as well. But I think when we share it with others, yes. to me, that's what cooking with love is about. That's not a self-indulgence. Mm. It is a, a, no. a generous service. That's done. That's right. That's right. You've got a happy life in uh, regional New South Wales and at some point the idea enters your head that you're going (laughs) to sign up to be be in this national cooking competition. What what was the process that led you to to make that application or to send in your audition video or whatever it is that you had to do to get on the show? It still makes me giggle because it kind of happened a little bit by accident. Um, so my husband is one of those men who just has his finger on the pulse in in everything. And before season one came to our TV screens, he came and said to me, there's this show coming called MasterChef. I think you should go on it. And I remember saying to him, I'm going on TV. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and he said, well, just watch a version of it in the UK because um, that's where it had started. And so I watched online this one episode and thought, oh, my goodness, that looks like so much fun. And so I went online and filled out the application form. It was really short. And um, But the last one was, would you be willing to be away from your family for up to, I think it was three months. Um, and I at the time had a one-year-old baby. And so I was like, no way, I'm not, I'm not 
being away from home at all. So I didn't send it in, but then I watched it. Um, And I watched season one and two pretty avidly because it just looked fun. And it was a new genre of reality TV where it wasn't about the people being nasty to each other. It was actually about people building each other up and it was no obviously with spoken, any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then I remember at the end of season two, an ad flashed up on the TV screen, um, applications for season three open now. And I just thought, wow, I wonder how this has changed because what started off as this little show that nobody had heard of mm-hmm. had become in two years a very big mm-hmm. um, feature program on our televisions. And so I, I literally went online more to check out how the application form had changed because I'd filled it in a couple of years earlier and it had changed substantially. It was much, much longer and more detailed and it used one of those processes where that at the time was quite new but to now now seems quite ordinary but you had to fill in every field before it would let you go onto the next page. And so as my three-year-old slept, had her little daytime naps, I'd fill in another few questions more out of curiosity because I was just interested to see what they were asking and the little inner workings of a show like this. And then the submit button was in the same place as the next page button and in my, you know, child delirium of having, you know, children that uh, are every last bit of energy out of you. I just hit submit and I remember sitting at the computer going, oh, no. But I thought... Do you know what? It doesn't matter. There'll be thousands of people that will actually apply for this. So I won't hear anything. And I didn't even tell my husband that I'd done it. Like I just, I just thought it was a nothing. I thought it'd be totally um, out there. And so then when I got a phone call to say, um, or I actually got an email to start with to say, you know, we want you to come in for an audition, I had to confess up to my husband and say, um, so turns out I accidentally applied for this. Uh, and I said, but it's okay, I'm not gonna go. And he said, why not? And I said, because it's ridiculous. I don't need to go on TV on a show like that. Um, And he said, oh, for goodness sake, Kate, you've been given this opportunity. You'll get to see the inner workings of MasterChef. You might even get to meet the judges. Come on, why don't you just give it a go? Plus it's a weekend away from the kids. And at that stage I was thinking, oh, that sounds very appealing. The rest was what I was naively thinking. Uh, So off I went to this audition, really without a care in the world, just thinking, oh, this will be a bit of fun. So did you have a strategy? This is my go-to dish I've got to prepare. and and I remember feeling... I remember feeling the pressure of, oh, gosh, I have to actually cook something good. Mm. Um, and I remember I actually used it really as a as a as um, an opportunity because we'd been to a local um, fine dining restaurant and had the most beautiful um, pork terrain. And I remember thinking, I want to try and make something like that. Mm. And so I just did a big experiment and had a go. And we had to take, for that first audition dish, we actually t- t- had to take it in with us. Right. Um, and so I just had a little play around in the kitchen and took that in with some, I think, some brioche and some, corn, like, very, very simple, basic kind of things. Um, but it did taste good. So um, obviously it got me through to the next yeah. round. And, um, yeah, so there were a few rounds of audition. And in my season they didn't show any of the auditions. They weren't filmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and so then I went, did the, went and did the audition, came home and thought, right, well, that was fun, that was that. Didn't re- again really didn't think there'd be anything to it because they travel around the entire country doing these auditions. Um, so then when I got a phone call to say that I'd made it into the top 50, I was 
a little bit shocked and a little bit taken aback. And I remember I was on my mobile phone in a local sports store with the kids mm-hmm. and I just stepped outside and I said to this lady, um, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm just going to have to think about that. I, d- I can't just say yes straight away. And she was really surprised. She's like, what? What do you mean? I said, well, I've got kids. I don't know how I can just extract myself from life. I'm not sure that I can do this. And she said, all right, well, I'll give you 24 hours this time tomorrow. So I went home and had probably the most agonising 24 hours of my life (laughs) trying to weigh up, do I go or do I not go? In my mind, I wasn't going. I thought that's ridiculous. But both my husband and a very good friend, a very good Christian friend, who I was adamant would definitely tell me this was a ridiculous idea and don't be silly, both of them were saying, no, you should go, absolutely, you go, we'll support you. Um, So Luke's philosophy was, look, God's obviously opened this door. Yeah. You might as well walk through it and see what's what's happening. And um, this gorgeous Christian friend was the same. And I remember sitting down that night with my Bible doing what you're always told never to do, mm. which is to just grab your Bible and just open it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, tell me something, God. <laughs> and I did it three times. And the first time it was uh, the verse that I just honed straight in on was go and make disciples of all nations. I was like, oh, damn it, go. Oh, yeah. And then. The other two ones were both about going and people going and going out into the world. And I remember walking into Luke and saying, I think I need to go. And so we just prayed about it and I said yes and off I went. And at each step of the way I kept um, ringing Luke and saying, oh, my gosh, I'm still in. Mm. <laughs> it was um yeah, it was quite the journey. We pushed forward with that a little bit because, you know, obviously – you, you started this whole process with an awareness that it was a door that God was opening. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you to tell us how did God become part of your life for you to even become yeah. the opportunity he was opening? Great question. Um, so I grew up in a family where we went to church. Um, we didn't read the Bible much at home, but we went to church more probably as that was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and then when I was in high school, I watched my sister start to take, my older sister start to take her faith mm. a lot more seriously. Um, uh, and I probably would have said absolutely without a doubt that God existed, mm. but I don't think he really had any claims on my life until after I'd left school, I moved away uh, to England for a gap year, so a working holiday, and pretty much totally ignored God that entire year. Came back and continued on, began university and the same sort of thing probably for another another year or so. Just would have said, yeah, absolutely, I believe in God, but it didn't really have, he didn't really have any impact in my day-to-day yeah. life. I stopped going to church. Um and then one time I was, um, it was literally, I was getting ready to go out one night and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. You know, one of those moments, I think I was kind of at that age of crossroads of trying to think, yeah, who am I? Who do I want to be? Mm. And I remember looking at myself thinking, who are you? Who, who do you want to be? You're at this age now where you get to decide, do you want to be a follower of God or do you not? Because you need to actually make some decisions around that. You can't keep pretending to be when it's not real. Mm. Um, And so that began a bit of a journey for me of investigation. I certainly didn't make the decision quickly or lightly uh, because by that stage I was aware that even though I had grown up uh, in a nominally Christian family and was going to church every week, 
Um, I didn't want to assume that that was actually the only explanation for life. Sure. Um, interestingly, at the time, my sister was taking her faith pretty seriously and my parents' faith was definitely growing. So I could see that. Mm. But for me personally, I didn't want to just assume that that was the only option. So I began reading prolifically mm-hmm. and talking to people, I'm sure to the point where they would have got, oh, here she goes again. Um, but I really wanted to understand different viewpoints of life. So I read about Buddhism and Islam and, you know, just all different secularism, um, all sorts of things that were pretty prominent at the time. Um, and at the end of the day, I think what I discovered was that the Christian faith was the only one where it was about what God did for us yes. rather than about what we have to do either for ourselves or another yeah. being. And that really struck a chord with me when I realised, huh, it's actually not about me and what I have to do. I think throughout my childhood and 10 years when I acknowledged that there was a God, I wrongly assumed that, that meant I had to follow his rules and it was all about it was all about doing the right thing in order to make him happy. And this this discovery sort of in my early 20s really flipped that on its head and went, actually, none of us can do the right thing. Mm. It's about what Jesus has done mm. so that we can be made right with God mm. um, despite our sin. And so that was quite a shift for me mm. and really quite appealing. So then I actually decided I wanted to go back to church to find out more. I I wouldn't have said I was completely committed at this point, but I was just intrigued. Mm. Uh, And I spoke to my older sister who by this stage was living in Perth and said, can you think of a church that I could go to that um, you think would be good for me as a uni student? And she suggested a church and so off I went and I dragged my little sister along um, and we heard the first in a two-part series on grace. Um, uh, But the thing was that it was a university church, but there wasn't a single soul in there. Like it was empty and it felt so dead. And I remember coming home and saying to my sister, I really want to hear the second part of that talk but, gosh, I'm not going to that church because it was totally empty. (laughs) Yeah. And so we went back the next week and it was bursting at the seams with uni students. The week before had been holidays Uh, when most of the colleges had been closed. And so we ended up settling into that church and I got into a Bible study group with actually it was a friend of my older sisters who led that group Um, and that was a massive period of growth for me when I questioned and wrestled. Um, And eventually I remember just coming to God one night saying, okay, I know I have to make this decision and it's hard because there were things I needed to give up in my life that I wasn't sure were going to be comfortable. Mm. Uh, But I realised that the pull that I had of the conviction of knowing that God was real and that God really did have a claim on my life was strong enough to me to to choose him. And, yeah, I've been growing ever since. You've obviously you're talking about a, a, an emerging into an understanding, and even though you were going to Bible study, even going going to church, even though yeah. you agreed with all of the thinking, you still had that moment of, I've got to choose. I've got to make a decision. I've got to choose. Yeah, absolutely. That was yeah. a moment of being an inquirer to being a disciple. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that and realising that there were going to be ramifications for that choice, mm. that it would mean that uh, so at the time I was going out with a, a guy that I'd been going out with for a number of years, he was not interested in God or his faith at all 
And so I knew I had to let that go. That was a massive thing um, at that time. Um, and then there were other things like going out and partying pretty hard mm. and realising that was not in line with who God want, wanted me to be. So I was going to have to let that go. Didn't mean there weren't going to be other great things yeah. there, yeah. Um, but it did mean I had to let go. I had to make a choice that really um, there was a cost involved. Yeah. But at that point I was so convinced of who God is and what he had done for me that I didn't really even care too much about the cost. It was just a no-brainer. It was, no, nah, I've just, this is what I've got to do. So mm. you, you mentioned before having a moment where you looked in the mirror and asked yourself mm. the question, who do you want to be? What did you see when yeah. you looked in the mirror after that decision? What, what was it that you saw differently about yourself and about yeah, your was in the world? I think um, what it, the biggest shift was probably feeling like I didn't know what my purpose was and why we're here, why we are here as humans prior to that. Mm. And so going along with that is, is all sorts of questions of then, well, what do I do with my life and what does it mean and what's the point? Through to uh, after that decision, just having a quietness in my spirit of those questions are answered. Mm. Those biggest questions about life, who I am, why I'm here, what my purpose is, they're answered and therefore everything else starts to make sense. Mm. Um, and that's why. Yeah, for me, that's the biggest shift. So then you look in the mirror and you go, okay, well, what I see is not perfect and there's lots of work that needs to be done, but actually I know who I am. I'm loved by God. Amen. Um, yes, I make mistakes, but I'm forgiven and therefore life has meaning and purpose beyond just yeah. me and what I do. And direction. And which means down the track you could mistakenly sub make that submission and then That's right. <laughs> say, this is a door I know God is opening. I believe God is opening for me. And for all the uncertainty of it and the unpredictability of it, I, I can step in and know that there is meaning and purpose in this event also. That's right. Okay. And that actually God is bigger than my thinking. So I may not know exactly what's going on here, but he does. And mm. so therefore there's a safety in that. Mm. There's a, a comfort in that. And that was something I actually noticed very early on probably as I got to know the, the other contestants. Mm. Some of them were there with a very desperate desire to win this thing because that's what would bring their meaning and purpose in their life. Whereas for mm. me, it yeah, was not good. so much that. It was it was actually God's opened this door and I don't know where he's going, taking me, and I'm very scared about this. But you know what? He's got me, so it'll be okay, whatever the outcome is. Yeah, which um, in the elimination cooks must have been some sort of <laughs> consolation, I guess, when you had the black apron on. Totally. Well, sometimes in the elimination cooks I was thinking, oh, good, finally, I'm probably going home now. Home. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I called like yeah. after so still in. <laughs> It's such a lovely yeah, to me, the idea of winning was actually quite terrifying. Um, I wasn't really planning to be in there to win. I was, yeah, I just felt like it was more God's open this door, walk through it, see what happens. And it wasn't really until we got down to the final five that I thought, oh my goodness, imagine if I happen. actually win this thing, what's that going to mean for life? And that was a whole new kind of scary. So what was it like being a, a, a Christian in that, heady world of TV production and the, the yeah, argy-bargy of how it all works. 
Yeah, look, to be honest, I think it's actually like it is to be in any real world setting. You know, um, we live now in a very secular society and if we're engaged in our society, um, I don't think there's a huge amount of of difference. There's certainly some pressure points, but I think people all around us in society feel those same pressure points if they're in secular workplaces. Um, I think the, um, the, the challenge to me was how do I be a Christian mm. when I know that the others around me are not mm. um, and, and what does that look like? And for me I was very conscious that I didn't want to be boxed yeah. into the cliched Christian and then set aside, right, well, you're irrelevant. So um, my approach rightly or wrongly, was I just prayed. Mm-hmm. Um, I prayed to God that um, if he wanted me to have conversations with people, that he would need to start the conversations yeah. <laughs> and that I would then, and I asked him that he would then give me the boldness, the awareness to, to hear what they were really asking mm-hmm. and then the boldness to respond truthfully. Mm-hmm. And that was my prayer over and over. I was also incredibly fortunate to have a husband who prays diligently and who did for me the whole time I was there and a number of friends who were also praying a lot. Um, And so actually in my time away, I lost count of how many conversations I had about God, like, with oh, the other people in the in the crew, with the other people in the house, um, with the producers, but I did not start one of those conversations. Wow. <laughs> All nice. I did was I kept praying that God would work and that He would make me aware and to be able to respond, and that He would give me the words. And I, I think for me, even to this day, it's it's a period in my life that I'm so aware, I was so aware of God working. Mm. Um, I think God works all the time. I don't think he ever stops working in our lives, but we go through periods of being super aware of it and times when we're less aware. Yes. Um, And, yeah, it was definitely a time when I was very aware and I attribute to that to the fact that I was completely dependent on him and praying to him very regularly. And I, I find that those times in my life when I've, been less diligent in in sharing my life with God um, in prayer. They're the times when I don't seem to see him working so much. And I think it's not because he's not working. It's just that I'm not as reliant on him. I keep thinking it's me that's doing it. And, um, yeah, I think it's really important to rely on him when we are in those situations where we are surrounded by secular thinking and, and people with some very strong opinions that oppose ours. Well, it's actually not up to us to change their hearts. It's up to yeah. God, and so we need to be prayerful about that all the time. Such a such a great example that you're describing of, of how to do that. So, mm. can you there? You you're being salt and light um, in, in that space. It ends up you come to the finale. They announce you as as winner. What change did that bring? That must have been another extraordinary transition point of your life. What? What did it mean for your family? Yes. For you? uh, extraordinary transition. Um, uh, and I just don't think there'll ever be an experience like it. Um, everything sort of changed at that point in terms of our family logistics and the life that I thought I was going back to um, was very, very different. Um, and initially that there was an element of um, 
sadness about that in some sense, but it, I also didn't really have time to, to dwell on that. It was pretty busy. It was pretty busy. It was ridiculously busy and chaotic. Um, so from the moment that I won, there, is a, there are a lot of media obligations um, for a, a good 48 hours. So I think I did, um, I think the following day I did 64 interviews within the space of one day. Oh. Yeah, like it, it is just, it's insane. It is really quite ridiculous. Um, and that gradually sort of reduced a little bit, but um, as things sort of calmed down on that front, other things heated up a bit. Um, and I, you, you are contracted mm. to obligations prior to winning. And when I when I signed that contract, I've learned a lot about signing contracts. <laughs> when I signed that contract way back at the beginning of the MasterChef journey, it did say, um, you know, the winner and the runner-up will uh, will be required for, I think it was, what was it, eight months of filming um, and then two years of obligations after that. And I remember looking at that and thinking, well, that's fine because that won't be me. Signed yeah. away. And, yeah, at that point of winning it was like, all oh, right, oh, yeah. yeah, that is me. So the next two years were pretty mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. So there was a cookbook deal, which was both a joy and a challenge. Um, yeah. It was a wonderful privilege to have, um, but it came at a time when there were so many other things. So I was travelling pretty much every week uh, for uh, at least six months and then it was every second week for another couple of years. And so that became... Uh, like there were so many fantastic things that happened out of that. And, and again, I could see God working through that. I did a lot of um, work in churches, actually sharing my story and my faith in churches and feel incredibly privileged to have been able to do that. But um, it did have it, did take its toll on me just in terms of the amount of travel away from home and family. And I've always been um, the kind of mum that wants to be with her kids. <laughs> And so I found that really hard. So after two years, I actively sort of started to pull back because the reality was that um, the more you do, the more you get asked to do. And so it was actually building exponentially. And I thought this is actually not what I wanted, not what's good for our family. And so it was at that point, at that sort of two-year mark that I went, hang on, this is actually not sustainable for us. There was a fair bit of pressure for us to move away from Orange, to move back into one of the capital cities, either Sydney or Melbourne. But we had actively made the decision to move into regional New South Wales. So that's never going to be um, something that we wanted to, to do. So at the end of yeah. the period, Kate, you you innocently signed the contract at the start of the process. Yes, it's going to be fine. You live the hectic, frantic life of national celebrity, recognised anywhere you go, invited here, yeah. there, everywhere. Your life not your own for two years. Yep. Comes to an end. You you make a decision with your family that you yep. served its purpose, or that's the season over. Yep. Looking back on that, what what do you think was the purpose of God in your life to expose you and your family to that period? Oh, look, I think that there are so many things that I could see him doing through that. Um, obviously, the opportunity to uh, tell others about God, that it would it would um, be up in the thousands um, of people that I had the opportunity to, to share who my experience of God is mm. with. 
Um, as our family, it was pretty testing, I think, particularly on our kids because they were quite young, mm. but it opened up so many opportunities for us to teach them about how God uses people and ordinary people because they didn't see me as a celebrity, but just ordinary people, (laughs) yeah, for his purposes Um, and and how he actually used them by enabling them to be able to cope so incredibly well, which they did, with me coming and going and all these interruptions into our family life, was able to show them as well how God sustains them and how God yeah, used us for as part, just one small part of his purpose in this world. Mm. Um, so that it opened up some wonderful conversations with them and some teaching moments with them. I think as well for me and for Luke, it, it really um, solidified uh, our faith that God, not solidified our faith, it was pretty solid before, but it, it affirmed in us yet again that God sustains us Amen. and that actually he's the one that carries us through and that he remains faithful no matter what mm. um, and that he, that we can trust him. You know, it was an enormous amount of trust that we needed to put in him mm. and he came through every single time. You know, like it was such a great um, time of deepening our personal faith mm. and trust in him. Um, so that's something I will always be incredibly grateful to him for. Some yeah. big lessons. I think whenever he pushes us outside our comfort zone, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be in this kind of a situation, but I think he sometimes nudges us outside our comfort zone so that we will learn to trust him. I understand. You mentioned before that you went into that process not wanting to be pigeonholed as the Christian and all of mm. that stereotype and to be prejudged. By others based on that you you maybe I don't know whether this is true but post the whole experience is there a chance that you're now pigeonholed as the master chef <laughs> you know, yes it's become it is one of my <laughs> yeah look it is okay with um, uh, look I don't if I could choose for it not to be I probably would I'm not somebody I've never been somebody that's been interested in celebrities Mm. or celebrity. It just doesn't interest me much. Um, And so to then find myself in that position and then with it continuing. So people still do recognise me. It doesn't happen nearly as much, but it still is um, something that happens. And, yeah, there certainly are times when I think, okay, I'd be quite happy for this to just all be done because in my head I've sort of gone, okay, that's that season. Mm. But I also think, again, it's one of those those things that, you know, sometimes there is a bit of a cost Mm. to following God and maybe that's the cost that I, I, one of the costs that I'm going to bear and that's okay Mm. because, you know, it really is first world problems. There's people who carry far greater burdens for, for God than that. And so while I don't love it, Mm. It's certainly, it's doable. It's just one of those things that, you know, it's just part of life now. Well, I'm interested to know because your your uh, understanding of celebrity is an interesting one, having felt mm. a regular person in the street that's become national name, recognised yeah. you there and everywhere, also in, encountering world celebrities in that sphere and then mm. moving back into a, a regular life, it, it must give you a different perspective of the 
essential humanness of people, regardless of what station they carry. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it. Um, I've seen, I've met some people who, by the world standards, are successful in every way. You know, they've got money, fame, wealth, mm. and yet when you have a conversation with them, you realise that there's still an emptiness there. Mm. Um, and there are some very, uh, I think, broken people still that that appear to be at the top of their game. Mm. And so that's been a very um, eye-opening thing for me to see that and to, again, have it affirmed that who the world says we are Mm. is actually unimportant Mm. Um, and that everybody has worth and value because we're all made in God's image. Mm. And and that's an incredibly empowering thing, particularly when dealing with um, all walks of life, which you do when you have this sort of experiences I've had, um, to see each and every person as somebody made in God's image is, I think, an incredible privilege uh, to be able to see the depth and breadth of God's creation and 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 how He works in all all people's lives, um, yeah. So I was going to ask yeah, you about one instance, Kate, of you meeting celebrity that that um, I'm conscious of, and yep. meant to be a Christian holding those views about the commonality of our humanness. Uh, you had an exchange with the Dalai Lama. And I did. It was. It was reported um, that you you uh, didn't want to refer to him as to his preferred title, His Holiness. Yeah. Tell us about how that worked for you, and how hard was it to hold your your um, values in the face of what must yeah. have been some pressure from those around to toe the line. Yeah. And how how your understanding of our common humanness informs that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was interesting. That was happened towards the end of my time on MasterChef. I think we were down to sort of final seven, if I can remember correctly. Um, and we were travelling to Melbourne and we had no idea what we were doing in Melbourne. Um, and I remember sitting on the plane and I saw the person next to me with a newspaper. We weren't allowed newspapers or magazines or any kind of general media in the house, so we hadn't seen a paper or the news or anything like that for a long time and I noticed this person on the plane with a newspaper and the Dalai Lama was in Melbourne Mm. and I remember thinking all right well that's interesting didn't think anything more about it and so then when it was announced to us that we were cooking for the Dalai Lama I was uh, yeah a bit gobsmacked Uh, and my first thought was actually how did they get him to agree to that? It's MasterChef. Anyway, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when that conversation had took place. Um, yeah, and so I guess for me by that stage, though, I had already seen God work over and over and over in my experience there. And when it came to it, so it was one of the rare challenges where um, we found out about the challenge and then there was a substantial break before we actually cooked. And that was because we needed to meet with one of his people to talk about protocols um, and all of those sorts of things. And so there was this big meeting with about 200 people in the room. So it was all the convention staff as well as all the MasterChef crew and then us contestants. Um, and I remember saying to a producer once it had been announced that we were to refer to him as your holiness. I remember saying to one of the producers, do you mind just finding out for me if there's something else 
I can call him that would be just as respectful. And then this meeting's called and he says, oh, well, you can ask. There'll be a question time at the end. And I thought, oh, great, in front of 200 people, thanks a lot. And that was probably the only moment where I felt like, oh, I don't want to do this. But um, I did. His um, advisor was actually remarkably nonchalant about it all. When I, I just said to her, look, I'm just wondering if there's anything that I could call the Dalai Lama other than your holiness, but that would still show respect because as a Christian, I'm not comfortable calling him your holiness. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, sure, you could just call him Dalai Lama. He wouldn't mind at all. And that was the end. Was that? So I thought there was no issue. But then when we go in to present our food, I didn't realise that it was going to be such a big thing right. in the and and also there was never normally a journalist on set. This was a very rare occasion. Yeah. Obviously, we're cooking for the Dalai Lama. It's a big deal. Yeah. And so a journalist was in there. So it was it was her that picked up on it. But because we didn't have any access to any media, yeah. I wasn't even sure what what the angle of her story was. So it wasn't um, it wasn't until much later that I found out that it was actually a, a deal in the community because she interviewed all of us about our experience. Yeah. And when she interviewed me, she just asked, "Can I just?" Ask Ask why you didn't call him mm. your holiness. And I just said, well, as a Christian, I believe that God's the only one that's holy and no matter how lovely he is, mm. I can't in good conscience call him your holiness. And I guess that's where it came from was a conscience mm. thing. Um, at the end of the day, I, I answered God. Mm. Uh, and like I said, all all humans have equal value in, in as to what we're taught in the Bible. And therefore, as lovely as that the Dalai Lama is, and he is, he's a lovely, gentleman. Yeah. Yeah, really, really lovely. Um, I, I can't in good conscience call him holy when only God is holy. And mm-hmm. so for me it wasn't really even a big deal. It was more just, okay, well, I can just call him Dalai Lama and that will yeah. be fine. And it wasn't until she put the angle on the yeah. paper article that it got picked up and, and spread around. And it was some some weeks later when I found out, my, my husband knew, but he refrained from telling me that there was a big <laughs> deal in the community. And it wasn't until, yeah, I actually saw it. It was, it was funny because we moved, when we got down to the final two, they moved us into a, a unit so that we weren't in this big house on our own. And there were TVs in our bedrooms and that house coordinator who was with us looked at this and it was 11 o'clock at night and he was we were all tired and we just landed in this place and he was supposed to arrange for these TVs to be removed. Oh, and he just looked at us and he said, oh, I won't tell if you don't that. tell. <laughs> and, so, and so both Michael and I were in our room the whole night watching TV because we yeah, hadn't watched TV enough, for months. Yeah. And there was a, I was on the phone to Luke and there was a show at the time called Can of Worms, yeah, which the nice. idea, the premise was that, they would uh, present a question to the audience and the audience had to say yes or no as to, and there was a bit of controversy. And they discussed me calling the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama instead of your holiness and did I do the right thing or the wrong thing? And so I'm on the phone to Luke and I was just like, hang on a second, I'll call you back. <laughs> and I watched this and that was the first I knew that it had been a bit of an issue. <laughs> Well, we were very yes. thankful and very proud of you, Kate, those of us who share your, your views. One last question before I let you go. Why is it that you think food is such an important part of Christian fellowship and Christian practice? Mm. What is it that that you think sharing that meal together does for connecting human hearts? I think partly it's the way God created us to be. Mm. Um, I think he created us 
obviously to need food as a basic need, but also as a creativity and as a way of, yeah, connecting with other people. And I think we see that both outside Christian spheres as well as within them. Um, I think as well there's numerous um, mentions in the Bible of feasts. God's always used feasts to bring people together as ways of celebrating. Um, And so I do think it's a God-given gift to uh, bring people together around food. And there is just something, whether it's to do with, I don't understand it fully, to be honest, but whether it's something to do with his creative power and our creativity mm. and it comes together and and something that we're doing where it's a basic need. Mm. So I think our basic need is obviously one of our basic needs is eating, but one of our basic needs is connecting with other yeah. people. Amen. And I think to just come together in a way that just seems right. And I look forward to the day when we will feast yeah. in heaven as yeah. is, uh, you know, mentioned in the Bible. How fantastic. And, and I think we're back to where we started looking at that notion of it's, it's not the love of the process or your self-indulgent love, but the generous mm-hmm. giving and making what you have available for others. That's, that's right. the heart of our just faith, the heart of our fellowship. Right. Yeah, amen, amen. Yeah. Hey, do, you, do your family still get the odd MasterChef treat rolled out at dinner time? <laughs> you have a, we have, we have some times. We do have some times, where we, particularly when I'm on holidays. There might be a few little uh, extra treats along the way. And Lash my out. kids are now at an age where they, they quite enjoy cooking and I've got one daughter in particular who's loving baking at the moment. So, yes, we get quite a few little baked treats through her as well. <laughs> generation of racks coming along. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were absolutely delighted to see such a, an authentic and, and uh, true-hearted Christian represented on our national media. Um, you, you carried all of that with such grace and such ease and such self-assurance that it's Wonderful to hear the source of that through this conversation was a deep abiding understanding of, of your place in God and his place in your life. I pray that forever you know the, the assurance of his love and of his call upon you. And may he bless Thank your family you. richly and abundantly. Thank you. I appreciate that. And look, it really was only by God's grace that any of that happened. So he's the one that needs the praise. Yeah. All praise. Amen. Amen. 